Wow. It has been my absolute joy and privilege to be here with all of you this week. I have had a wonderful time. And uh, I just want to thank you for the incredible hospitality. I want to thank you for the religion faculty. I want to thank you for inviting me and allowing me to be in so many different classes and places and getting to know so many of you. And I just want you to know I am inspired. I am inspired by all of you when I see you and your passion for Jesus Christ and knowing that you are the ones who will carry the church into the future. And God bless you and thank you for what you are doing. It is just, like I said, it's been my joy and my privilege to be here and to to share with you this week. And I'm just going to take you back to Cappadocia again this morning. For those of you that weren't here on Wednesday, let me just catch you up real quickly. I served as a missionary in the former Soviet Union for 13 years. While I was there, Christianity was coming back to life. Christianity that had been stamped out for 70 years. Churches that had not been opened. And I began to watch as as Christianity began to bubble up and, and began to again affect this world for Jesus Christ. But I was concerned about what I was seeing in the major church of Russia, which was the Russian Orthodox Church. I was trying to get my head around what it was that they understood and what they believed about faith. And also as a woman serving in the church, I was concerned that the only thing I saw women doing in church was sweeping the floors and lighting the candles. And I thought there must be something back there in our collective history that would tell us something about the role of women in the church and not just the role of women. But what about this message of holiness that we hold on to in the Wesleyan Armenian tradition? And could it be that that message of holiness goes back to all of Christianity before we split and went all of our different ways? And that adventure led me to a part of the world called Cappadocia in modern-day Turkey, borders up there near Armenia. It's near Mount Ararat. That part of the world, it led me on a journey to take me there. On Wednesday, I shared with you kind of the outline of what I began to understand, of their understanding of of becoming like God, this idea of theosis, and shared with you this kenosis-theosis parabola. Well, today I'm not going to go through that whole outline again, but I want to add some meat to the outline. I want to introduce you to the very people of Cappadocia that helped fill out that picture for me, that helped me to understand that it's not just a theoretical idea, but that they were real people that lived this out. And so I'm going to take you to the family of the Cappadocians. I have a slide here of an icon. My daughter and I traveled actually to Cappadocia. We made all our way through Turkey. We made our way to Greece. All the way I'm traveling along, everywhere I go, I keep trying to buy an icon of the Cappadocian fathers. I think my daughter got sick and tired of me asking that question. I would go into store after store, and I'd be like, do we have the Cappadocian fathers? They'd have icons of Peter and Paul. They'd have Mary, too. You guys are too young to know about Peter, Paul, and Mary, but that's all right. Um, But they would have these icons, and, and nothing was from Cappadocia. I'm like, why are you selling icons of people that didn't come to Cappadocia, you know? And, and, and so it just kind of was interesting, and I couldn't find my Cappadocian fathers. It's the last day of our trip. I mean, we've been gone for two and a half weeks, and we're in Athens, and, and I go in this one store, and I ask for the Cappadocian fathers, and they have this icon of Basil the Great, Gregory of Nazianzus, and John Chrysostom. Okay, well, there's two out of three on that icon. It's pretty close, but it's not quite what I want. And um, they want $700 for the icon. I'm like, I don't think so. Not for two out of three, that's for sure. So... Um, <laughs> 
So I leave the Icon store, and I, I head out down the road, and my daughter... And this is my daughter, Kara. And by the way, whoever tweeted her the other day while I talked about her in chapel, that cost me a dinner. So be careful what you tweet, okay? Um, So (laughs) my daughter, Kara, is there in in Athens, and she goes into this little icon shop ahead of me, and and she's in there, and she's asking for me. You know, she's trying to be real helpful. and, And she asks the icon salesman, and he says, can I help you? And she goes, yeah. And instead of asking for the Cappadocian fathers, she said, do you have an icon of the Cappadocian mothers? Well, there really is no such thing, but she asked him anyways. And, and the guy looks at her and he goes, oh, you mean like Nona? He actually knew one of the names of one of these women. And um, Kara goes, well, what about Macrina? And they're having this conversation. He goes, just a minute. About then I walk into this icon shop and this man is rumbling around upstairs in his attic. I can hear him. And he comes down and he has this box. And he said, you know, a number of months ago, I ordered an icon of the Holy Family. You know, Mary Joseph, baby Jesus. He said, and I opened it up, and it had this icon in it. And he said, an icon of the holy family of St. Basil. He said, who in the world would want an icon of the holy family of St. Basil? And I opened up this icon, and there at the very top of it is a woman by the name of Emily. She is the mother of that family on that icon. Off on one side is the sister, Macrina. On the other side is another sister, Theosibia. In the middle is a brother by the name of Necratius. On the bottom row, we're going to find Peter, Basil the Great, the father Basil, and the brother Gregory of Nyssa. All on one icon were all the people in my, my doctoral dissertation. <laughs> I thought that was pretty awesome. I mean, I just wanted three guys, and I got the whole family. So he begins to, like, negotiate with me how much I'm going to pay for this icon. I got it for 50 bucks. I just want you to know. Yes. Got the whole family for 50 bucks. That is my icon. And, um, you know, I'm pretty excited about it. I thought, you know, that was pretty neat. And I just have to tell you something really personal. I walked out in the, out in the um, walking down the alleyway on that rainy day in Athens, and I'm holding on to this box with this icon in it. And it was like I heard the voice of the Lord say, I just did that for you because I like you. cool? I mean, sometimes God just does things for us just because he loves us. And he just says, I'm just going to do that for you. So that's my icon. And that helped me to know this family. Now I'm going to introduce you to the different family members. The next one, I want the next slide here is I want to introduce you to grandma. Grandma's name is Macrina, Macrina, the elder. She's grandma. She lived in the area of Cappadocia up in the Northern part, but she lived during the time of the persecutions, the very end of the persecution of all of Christianity. For seven years, this lady had to live in the wilderness, living in caves to survive so that she could be a follower of Jesus Christ. She was a disciple of a man by the name of um, Gregory the Wonder Worker, a man that did incredible miracles. And she would listen at his feet and be his disciple. And she just soaked in everything that she could learn about being a follower of Jesus Christ. She was married and she had a son by the name of Basil. She raised this son to be a follower of Jesus Christ, but he also was a lawyer. He was a lawyer and a a good man. And when it came time for him to get married, the family began to look for a little wife for him. (laughs) And they found this young lady. Her name is Amelia or Emily as she's also known. She's our next slide up there. And Emily was also raised by Christian parents who had suffered under the persecutions, except both of her parents were put to death. Emily was an orphan. She was also known as being extremely beautiful. And as an orphan girl, it was actually dangerous for her. And when this elder man, Basil, he was probably 30 or 40, and she would have been a teenager, 
He was a Christian man. He took her to be his wife and to be her protector. And they began to raise one of the most amazing families the world has ever seen. Between, they had 10 children that they had. Of those children, six of them are canonized today as saints within the Orthodox and the Catholic Church. We never again find a family that has six children canonized as saints. Amelia, I don't know if you can read her little icon there. It says, Behold, I and the children that God hath given me. The mother of all saints, Emily. And I have to tell you, I thought, what in the world can I learn from these women of Cappadocia? Well, Emily, this mother, I want to introduce you to her children. The next one, the next slide, is her oldest daughter, who she names after her mother-in-law. She and her mother-in-law have a great relationship. The mother-in-law lives in the home. The mother-in-law helps her to raise these holy children. And so the oldest daughter is named Macrina. Macrina, also known as being very beautiful. They told us over and over again that this Cappadocian family was really good looking. And, um, and you read about that all the time. Well, Macrina, she's also a teenage girl and her family decides that she's got to get married. And they find a good young lawyer to have her um, engaged to and they're engaged. But before they can get married, he dies. Macrina wanted to give her life in service to God, so she looks at her brothers and her parents, and she says, you know, I know you wanted me to get married, but I'm going to consider myself having been married, and the rest of my life I want to give in service to God. And this girl completely dedicates her life to God as a teenager, and everything about who she is and what she does for the remainder of her life is about serving God. She goes on to be the teacher of her younger siblings. She teaches them the scriptures in the home. The icon that she's holding on to has three of her brothers in it. Three of her brothers become bishops in the church. That's Gregory, Basil, and her brother Peter. And they revere her as the great teacher. She's the one that calls them to the holy life. She's the one that keeps prodding them in the direction that they ought to go. Basil, the great, the big brother, he's younger than her, but he gets to go off and have the great education. He gets to go to Caesarea. He gets to go to Athens. While he's in Athens, he becomes best friends with this guy, Nazianzus. One of his other buddies is a guy named Julian who becomes the emperor. I mean, this guy's well-connected. He comes back home to Caesarea, and his sister writes him and said, you know, you are all puffed up. You just think way too much of yourself. It's time for you to get out here and to begin giving your life wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ. A major influence on her family, Macrina, the sister. Next, we have a brother by the name of Necratius. And Necratius does not um, serve the church in the way as other brothers do. But he is a holy man. He also gives his life in service to God. But he believes that he ought to go out, live in the wilderness, catch fish and wild animals, and share the food with the needy within his community. And that's how he lives out his life until one day he dies in a fishing accident. He gets caught in his nets and he gets drowned in the river. But Necratius gives his life in service to God. There's a next one is a sister by the name of Theosibia, another part of the family. She ends up becoming the assistant of her brother Gregory of Nyssa. She actually becomes an ordained minister and helps to pastor the church in Nyssa. Theosibia, another great servant of the Lord from this family. There are a few other siblings that I don't have any icons of. I'm just going to list them. There's one sister. I kind of feel sorry for her name as the fallen sister or the fallen virgin. We'll talk about her in a little bit. There's two other sisters and a baby that died at birth. So she had 10 children. That was Emily and that great family. Just so you know them a little bit, Gregory of Nazianzus, best friend of uh, Basil the Great. He's the next picture here. And he also wrote about the women that were in his life. Now, I did notice this with the icons. You can go on to the next one here, the next icon. Now, not that we have to take it like purposeful, but 
they really did make that Cappadocian family sort of pretty compared to Gregory of Nazianzus's family. I don't know. All that stuff says they were really good looking. You don't hear that this family's really good looking. Just check out the next icon in a minute. But Nona is the mom, and, and that's Gregory of Nazianzus's mother, and she has a major influence on his life. And then his sister, Gorgonia, is the next icon. And, and um, <laughs> it, it just struck me, I'm sorry, but, um, you know, that even the icon painters seem to catch on to what church history tells us. So Gorgonia is the other sister. All right, now I'm going to take you to Cappadocia. I've just got a little picture of life in Cappadocia. Cappadocia, I told you, was a little bit like Idaho. Maybe it was a little bit like Texas as well. Um, they're known for their huge horse ranches. And even in the time of the 4th century, they had big horse ranches. They still have horse ranches to this day. That's what Cappadocia is like, big kind of ranch area of the world. So that's where they were. The next is an icon that I found of a lot of the uh, Cappadocian family, and, um, and that's just another picture of them there. All right, so how did these people encapsulate this kenosis theosis parabola that I talked about the other day? At the beginning of that parabola, I talked about the image of God and how we can lose that image of God if we are as a mirror and we turn our back on God. You see, along the way of this whole parabola, I found people that they wrote about in their family that were an illustration. So I want to take you to Basil the Great writing about the fallen virgin. You see, we believe that this was one of the littlest sisters of this whole family. One of the little sisters that probably was born in Caesarea, but by the time she was growing up, the family had moved out to become a family monastery out in the countryside. She grew up in this holy family, and the family actually told her, we thought you would just be as great as your big sister, Macrina. Can you imagine the pressure on a little sister? Could you just be as great as your big sister? Could you just be as good as your big brother? And I think that somewhere along the line, this little sister rebelled. She said, family, you're not going to push me into this Christianity that all of you are into. I need to go my own way. Her father has passed away. Basil is now the head of the family, and he's a great bishop by this point in time. And this little teenage daughter decides to run away with a boy. Talk about losing the image of God. And Basil is devastated. And if you go on to the next slide, I've got some of the comments from a letter that he writes to her in letter number 46. He says, for not only your thoughts have been corrupted, but with them, your very body as well. Obviously, he feels the depth of the corruption when he states, you took the members of Christ and made them the members of a harlot. Wow. This little sister, you see, had said that she was going to serve God. She had decided she was going to become a nun. And when you decide you're going to become a nun, you make this vow to be a bride of Christ. And when she ran off with this boy, he said, you committed adultery against Jesus Christ. You know what, folks? That's pretty bad. And do you ever think that maybe the things that we've done are so bad that we can never find our way back to God? I'm guessing this little sister thought that way. And I imagine she's just dying when she gets this letter from big brother Basil. And he's condemning her. For you see, he says, the image of God is lost in you. You turned your back on him. (laughs) And this letter just sounds so real. He says, well, the excuses sound all too familiar. But she wanted it, he says. And I did not violate her against her will. Doesn't it just sound like modern life? Well, Basil continues this letter with her. 
And I think this next slide, if we look at what Basil says here, he says, the concern is whether the wound is too deep or the fall is too great, asking, escaping the possibility of restoration, he asks, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? In other words, is there a sin that is so great? Is there something that we can do that is so awful that creates such a wound in our life that we can never, ever, ever find healing from God? And he cries out in this letter, is there no balm in Gilead, no physician there? But you see these Cappadocian brothers... (laughs) They didn't just write about theology, they lived theology. And it was a part of their lives, and they had to believe that there was the possibility of being restored in the image of God. And there was hope, and there was hope for their beloved little sister. And all of a sudden, Basil changes the whole tone of his letter, and suddenly we find him in the story of the prodigal son. And at the end of the letter, we find him standing on the side of the road. Because, you see, they believed in an incredible hope of life being restored. And then he says, and if any of those who think they stand find fault because you have been received too quickly, the good father himself will speak in your defense, saying it was fitting that we should make merry and be glad, for this my daughter was dead and has come to life again, was lost and is found. And this big brother, Basil, the great bishop, says, little sister, it doesn't matter what you've done. The grace of God will restore every one of us. Just come home. In the next slide, I found uh, that 20 years later, their friend, Gregory of Nazianzen, he wrote an epigram for the death of Emilia, the mother This is 20 years later. He says, she alone among mortals had both good children and many children. Three of her sons were illustrious priests and one daughter, the companion of a priest, and the rest were like an army of saints. The one who was lost, the one who had run off and committed adultery with Jesus Christ is now considered a member of the army of saints. You see, there's incredible hope in that holiness message that says, you can be restored. And an incredible thing, I think it's kind of funny, I also found that five years after this entire incident, Basil wrote some rules, some rules on how a man could be restored that steals a woman away from a nunnery. And he had a five-year process of punishment for that man. Somehow, that whole theology in their life, that's pretty intertwined. There's reasons why those things happen. Well, I want to take you on to Gregory of Nazianzus' mother and his sister. Because they take us to another place in the parabola. Nona and Gorgonia. You see, they represent the restoration of the image of God. And I want you to understand this. He, he refers to them as Eve restored. We talk all the time about Jesus Christ being the second Adam and how he comes and he restores all of humanity. But sometimes I have to tell you, we tend to leave the women out of the story. And in church history, they would talk about man being restored, but not necessarily about woman. And I have this little quote on this next slide, if you'll go to that, um, from Tertullian from the fourth century. 
I mean, not the fourth century, but Tertullian. And do you know, do you not know that you are each an Eve? He's referring to women. The sentence of God on this sex of yours lives in this age. The guilt must of necessity live too. You are the devil's gateway. You are the unsealer of that forbidden tree. You are the first deserter of the divine law. You are she who persuaded him whom the devil was not valiant enough to attack. You destroyed so easily God's image, man. On account of your desert, that is death. Even the son of God had to die. I just want you to know they didn't really have a good view of women, okay? (laughs) And what became so amazing about these Cappadocians is that I believe that the influence of this incredible community of women on them gave them a view of the kingdom of God in the fourth century that just sort of opens your eyes. And Gregory of Nazianza says, you know what? My mother and my sister have revealed to me that the entire image of God can be restored in the woman as well as in a man. And that there should not be this distinction of punishment upon the woman. Well, on the next slide, if you look here, there's just some comments that he makes about these women. One woman is famed for her domestic labors, another for her grace and chastity, another for her pious deeds and the pains she inflicts on her body, her tears, her prayers, and her charity. But Nona is renowned for everything. And if we may call this death, she died while praying. He tells us about Nona, his mother, and this holy woman that she became. She gave her whole life wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ. She was a devoted prayer warrior, and literally, she dies in chapel at the altar in prayer. She is known as being this woman that prayed her husband into the kingdom of God. She marries a non-Christian. And during that time, she believes that she is to be the spiritual leader and to help bring him to Jesus Christ. They call her the drip that hollowed out the stone. That's not real nice, but, you know, it it got the job done. She prayed enough that he finally came to Jesus Christ. Also, Nazianzen says, Just as Christ is the second Adam, Nona and Gorgonia are female figures in whom the image of Christ is restored. And through that restoration, they are able to overcome and set aright what had occurred because of Eve's behavior. Oh, bitter taste and Eve, mother of our race and of our sin, and deceptive serpent and death, all overcome by her self-mastery. Well... It was amazing what these two women represented to him, that they could be this new Eve. And I want to tell you something that's interesting about this story. Much of Christianity today says that God cursed us as humans because of the sin. We had been living as Adam and Eve had been in an equal relationship. And because of sin, humanity is not necessarily cursed. It was a prophecy of God that says the man will rule over the woman. And that relationship was completely and totally changed as a result of sin. But not only was this relationship changed, but humanity's relationship with Jesus, with God was changed as a result of the fall. When Jesus came, he came to restore things. And somehow we believe that, God, that Jesus Christ came to restore this relationship of humanity with God. But wouldn't he have also come to set the other relationships right as well? Wouldn't that be a part of the restoration And why is it that sometimes in Christianity we insist that we need to live in a fallen state of relationship of men and women in this world when we only only want to accept the restoration of the relationship of humanity to God? Gregory of Nazianza said, this is a restoration. 
This is a restoration of women. This is a restoration of man. This is a restoration of humanity in their relationship to one another. And that's what's so important about what he has to say. This next slide talks about Nona's leadership, and there would be people that might struggle with this. But you see, Nona, the mother, she was the spiritual leader because the husband didn't know Jesus Christ. But she, who was given by God to be my father, to my father, became not only his helper, for this would be less wonderful, but also a leader personally guiding him by deed and word to what was most excellent. Although she deemed it best in accordance with the law of marriage to be overruled by her husband in other respects, she was not ashamed to show herself as his master in piety. While beauty, natural as well as artificial, is wont to be a source of pride and glory to other women, she is one who was ever recognized only one beauty, that of the soul and the preservation and to the best of her power, the purification of the divine image in her soul. You see, her goal was Jesus Christ. Her goal was to know Jesus, and her goal was then to bring her husband along so that he would come to know Jesus Christ. She said, my husband is my head in terms of the earthly factors, but Christ is my head. Christ is the one to whom I have to answer and give authority. Her husband becomes a follower of Jesus Christ and sort of accidentally gets ordained and becomes a bishop. So in the meantime, um, (laughs) they end up becoming these Christian leaders together, this husband and wife team, and it's this powerful team that God uses The next slide here, Nona, is particularly interesting because she is not represented as an obedient wife in contrast to um, insubordinate Eve. Rather, she is portrayed as a wife who, in obedience to Christ, was willing at times to lead her husband. The next slide here. His sister Gorgonia is seen as loving and caring for her household as well as for her husband. But all of this built upon the foundation of Nazianzen's understanding of deification or theosis. Her reach went far beyond her own home and being recognized as a wise woman. She counseled even men. The men of the community accepted her advice and exhortations as absolute law. Nazianzen referred to her words as being sagacious. She had become the ideal wife, the new Eve, a woman who was just as comfortable in the home as she was being an equal partner with the men of her world. Let me just tell you, this was incredibly radical for the fourth century. But this is what they understood as holiness and a restoration of humanity and a restoration of these relationships. One more slide just about them real quickly. Nona and her husband Gregory end up becoming great parents to these three kids to Gregory of Nazianzus, his brother Caesarius, and to, um, and to Gorgonia. The brother Caesarius does not follow them in the ministry of the church like Gorgonia and Gregory do. He becomes a physician, and he becomes a great doctor. He becomes such a great doctor that Julian, the emperor, hires him to be his personal physician. So if you can imagine, this family has great influence. But Caesarius loves Jesus Christ. And Julian, who had gone to university with the big brother Gregory, becomes Julian the apostate who doesn't want to serve God. So in the middle of Caesarius being the private physician to the emperor, the emperor says, I'm going to take you in on a debate on Christianity. So the doctor debates the emperor on Christianity. And the doctor wins. This is the statement that the brother makes at the end of the debate. Alas for this madness and folly, if he hoped to take Caesarius, a man such as he was, my brother and the son of these parents for his prey. In other words, you might be emperor, but Caesarius is known as son. I mean, how do you think you're going to beat him in a debate? Caesarius has to run for his life, but he did win in the debate. 
So this incredible restoration is possible for all of us within the image of God, for men and for women. And finally, I want to take us on to that very last place, that place where we begin to soar with God. You see, Macrina, our final lady, she becomes the bride of Christ. And there is something that happens here in this story when we begin to understand that we can turn from sin. We can be in the depths of sin. We can be restored. We can be restored to something incredible that God intended for all of humanity. And then we can begin to soar into a holy life with a holy God. And he's calling us into this intimate relationship with him to understand this as being a bride, to fall in love with God. That becomes the holy life. You know, I have to confess to you this morning, I've been on the road quite a bit the last couple of weeks, and I haven't seen my husband very much. And this morning I texted him and I said, can you call me before I go to chapel? I'd like to just hear your voice this morning. And this year I will have been married for 30 years. And it has been a good journey. Sometimes there are rough patches in life. Sometimes you have to push through. Sometimes life isn't always easy. But I want to tell you something. If you push through, it's worth it. And, you know, we're kind of at this time in our lives. We're empty nesters. Life is a little bit different. But I'm at this point in my life where I just love being in the same room with my husband. We don't even have to talk. I just want to be there with him. I just I just want to be around him. And God is saying, holiness is about feeling that way about Jesus Christ. You see, it's not about a list of do's and don'ts. It's about falling in love with God. It's about wanting to be with him in the intimacy of life. It's that I don't want to be anywhere except just be with him. And Macrina became this bride of Christ. Let's just look at this slide here a minute. Should a life, such a life should not be lost sight of in time and that having raised herself to the highest peak of human virtue through philosophy, she should not be passed over in silence and her life rendered ineffective. In other words, they felt like we had to tell the story. Macrina's life is conceived as a homogenous unity reflecting the heroine's continuous progress from the earliest childhood towards her perfection. In Macrina's case, perfection carried a very specific sense, her destiny. The ideal towards which she progressed was that of a saint or that of being united with God. And I'm just going to skip down a few slides. If you go to the one that says holiness on it. You see, Nissen imagined that the angels surrounded the bridegroom and that the bride's transformation brought her closer to the form of the angels. Gregory of Nyssa was present in the room when his sister Macrina died. When he watched her go from this life into the next... Nissen describes this moment as being one in which she becomes a kind of living mirror, possessing free will. When I face my beloved with my entire surface and all the beauty of his form is reflected within me, she can say wholeheartedly, I to my beloved and my beloved to me. Macrina has offered herself to her beloved and now receives from him his own beauty within herself. The result is what Nissen describes as true holiness, purity, incorruptibility, light, truth, and all the rest. And these pasture my soul, not in the dry undershrubs or in the pastures, but in the brightness of the saints. And folks, that is what we are called to. We are called to be on this incredible journey, to become intimate with the one who loves us deeply 
and to be drawn into a holy relationship in which we face him and we reflect him to our world. He says, won't you come? Won't you fall in love with me? I just want to end this morning by one of my favorite songs from the former Soviet Union. I love you, Lord. And if you will indulge me, I want to sing it in Russian. Because there's nothing more amazing than listening to a former communist sing, I love you, Lord. So would you stand with me just a minute? I'm going to sing this song. You know what? The altars are always open. If you feel like you need to come and pray about anything this morning, if the Holy Spirit's speaking to you, then you're welcome to do so. If you need to meditate in your heart right where you are, that's fine. But let's just take a few moments in closing and think about where we are in this journey and where we are in falling in love with God.